Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, another big show today, man. Another big guest. I don't want to rank all of our guests, but two big guests in a row. Uh, This week, we have former Secretary of State, uh, former Ambassador of the United Nations, Madeleine Albright. She's coming on to talk about her book, Hell and Other Destinations, uh, a 21st century memoir. We just spoke to her. She is smart, funny, engaging. The book sounds great. So, uh, Don't miss that interview uh, because you will be mad at yourself. For the news portion of this, we got a bunch of ground to cover. So there's a long-awaited political agreement finally in Israel, and we'll talk about that. Uh, We will try to explain how the price of oil could turn negative. Very confusing headlines yesterday. Uh, There are a bunch of rumors about Kim Jong-un's health and what that might mean for North Korea's future. There's a bunch more attacks on democracy in Hong Kong in our ongoing series of uh, stories about how despots are using the coronavirus to do terrible, unrelated things. Uh, we'll talk a bit about China's economic recovery and some interesting polling that your group did, Ben, on uh, national security and Donald Trump and elections. So a lot of good stuff today, uh, a little less coronavirus focus because I imagine it's as depressing for you guys sometimes as it is for us. So we're trying to cover everything. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, one quick thank you before we get to the news. Uh, more than 1,500 of you have used the call tool on votesaveamerica.com slash call to get connected with your representatives in Washington and tell them that they need to include funding to make elections safe and accessible as part of the next coronavirus relief package. That is so amazing, and it's really important to do while that package is still being negotiated. Now we want one more thing, which is to hear from you guys directly about why you need safer voting options, including vote by mail. It could be because you have a pre-existing condition that puts you at risk. It could just be that you don't feel safe volunteering at the polls or or being in a crowd, but we want to hear your stories. So send a video to us at 323-405-9944 so we can hear your story, share your story, uh, and send a message to Congress and state governments about how important this is. Again, that number is 323-405-9944. Tell us your stories. We want to hear from you. All right, let's start with this political agreement out of Israel. So after three elections, a year or more of instability, Israel's political leaders finalized, finally, a deal that will ostensibly allow Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu to stay in that job for at least another 18 months. Now, that's assuming the deal doesn't fall apart, which these things tend to do. But uh, under the terms of this agreement, Netanyahu's chief rival from several elections from the Blue and White Party, Benny Gantz, he will be named Deputy Prime Minister. And then in 18 months, uh, Gantz is supposed to be elevated to the top job. But if you believe that is going to happen, I would like to wager some bets with you. So, 
the way they're splitting up responsibilities is basically uh, the Likud, Bibi's party, will get to control education, transportation, housing, security, health, and finance ministries. Gantz will control uh, defense, foreign affairs, culture, justice, media, and Gantz himself will be the defense minister. The plan reportedly papers over some of the more divisive issues by basically saying, this is an emergency government. Let's spend six months focused on the coronavirus, and let's punt all these hard questions like military service for ultra-Orthodox down the road uh, to later. Bibi's trial for fraud, bribery, breach of trust will start on May 24th, so we will have to watch all the ways he tries to obstruct that. Predictable, Ben, but still pretty disappointing is where they landed on a Palestinian state. Uh, Netanyahu and Gantz have both talked about annexing Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Apparently, they're going to take that proposal to the Knesset in July and move out on it. Uh, And since the Trump administration has endorsed that plan and the broader international community seems to have lost interest in fighting for the Palestinian state. It seems like it could go forward. So, you know, this race uh, over the past year got really ugly. Bibi supporters called Gantz a terrorist sympathizer. And Netanyahu's son, who is the Don Jr. of Israel, uh, spread rumors that Gantz had created sex tapes that were hacked by Iranian agents. So uh, really ugly, and which led to blue and white party members being furious about this agreement. I don't know how the party survived this, but we'll see. You know, this week in Tel Aviv, these thousands of mask-wearing Netanyahu protesters or opponents uh, stood two meters apart in a socially distanced protest, which was a pretty amazing uh, visual. So, Ben, a couple questions for you. Do you agree with this analysis that basically this was the best Gantz was going to get in this environment, given the coronavirus, given the polling, given Bibi's power? And, And what do you think this means for... People like us who still hope one day that there is a, a two-state solution. I mean, I'm sure it was a really hard environment, but I I don't think that this was the best. You know, we've been through three elections. Uh, what BB's basically been able to do is kind of, you know, protract a stalemate so that he's the last man standing. And, you know, part of what worries me about this, Tommy, is if, if you look at the history of BB's elections... He often has succeeded in, you know, neutering, uh, if not ending the political careers of of his opponents by bringing them into his government (laughs) and then kind of outmaneuvering them, blaming them for things, uh, using their, you know, their awkwardness of being kind of half in with BB and half out uh, to undermine their public support. And so if you go back and look, you know, Zippy Livni, ran against Bibi in 2009, actually got more votes than him, couldn't form a coalition, ended up coming into a Bibi-led government as foreign minister, and that was kind of the end of her political career. You know, um, Ehud Barak, who'd been prime minister before and a political opponent of Bibi, comes in as defense minister, you know, ends up kind of not a viable politician on the back end. Uh, you have Yair Lapid, uh, who is seen as uh, one of the leading kind of centrist challengers to Bibi, similarly comes in, same thing happens. And so there is a pretty clear pattern here where Bibi kind of runs the coalition game. He doesn't have like majority support for him, but he makes it you know difficult for anybody to amass a coalition bigger than the, the essentially the far right block of parties that he can assemble. He kind of co-ops and brings in the political opponent and that person ends up getting kind of chewed up. Uh, and so I think we should look for signs over the next 18 months if that's the play that's happening again. And if Gantz's star is being diminished and Bibi's somehow undermining him or blaming him for things, um, I, I'd look for that. I'd also look for whether or not 
any other opposition to to BB emerges, does this energy that the blue and white party tried to harness of people who just want to move past Netanyahu, does that coalesce around somebody else other than Benny Gantz? Uh, I thought Lapid, who was kind of you know one of the other important figures in blue and white, you know, was pretty blunt in uh, you know in, in how he described this um, as you know essentially. Uh, a, a, a you know a betrayal in a way yeah and and so i i think that uh you know to me it's a it's an unsatisfying outcome that kind of preserves this stalemate it's unclear what it means for bb's corruption trial um i think the suspicion is that you know as he's sitting prime minister that will be more difficult uh for uh for prosecutors to to effectively move forward we'll have to see on that and i think in general on the palestinian issue you know, clearly that didn't feel like something that Gantz was, you know, fighting for, um, uh, you know, to have a, a, a more, you know, rational and, and uh, I, well, let me put it this way, uh, I, you know, clearly on the Palestinian issue that, that Gantz was not fighting in these negotiations for a radically different policy and approach that could bring about a Palestinian state. Uh, the, the conversation seems to be about when and how fast and how much to annex, you know, the West Bank, you know. So, again, I think we're not going to see changes on a lot of the issues we talk about, including the Palestinian issue, unless we get beyond this type of stalemate government. Um, and, and really, actually, one of the telling signs will be the U.S. election, because, you know, if the U.S. moves in a different direction and Bibi had kind of thrown his lot in fully with Trump, you know, I think that might undercut him a bit at home, too. Um, so that could uh, have some impact on how this plays out. But but for me, this is a, a, a generally a win for Netanyahu. Yeah, that seems right. I mean, look, you know, the one the one constant about Netanyahu is he is a savvy, smart political operator. He He tends to win in the end. It does seem like he may have engineered uh, a series of, of divisions of labor that will allow him to appoint people to oversee his own prosecution. So, yeah, uh, not ideal. But what, what are you going to do? Yeah. And, you know, if, just to be specific on Lapid, you know, again, who was not like a left wing guy, he's a centrist, but opposed Netanyahu. He went out and he said, I apologize to everyone who I convinced over the past year to vote for Benny Gantz. I didn't believe your votes would be stolen. There has not been such deceit since the establishment of the state, you know. So, I mean, that's a uh, that's a, a, a much more dire uh, diagnosis than even I gave. And that's from someone you know who's generally a, cent- a centrist in the context of Israeli politics. Yeah. So, you know, look, not the outcome I think any of us were, were hoping for, but, you know, we don't get a vote. So it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I do want to note that we're recording this on uh, a Tuesday, April 21st, which is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, according to the Associated Press, there are about 180,000 Holocaust survivors remaining in Israel. Uh, there's a similar number elsewhere in the world. You know, tragically, you know, these are obviously people who are, are extremely old at this point. Uh, you're seeing a lot of survivors uh, getting taken by COVID. Um, you know, Ben, I remember vividly like taking a class in eighth grade that was called Facing History in Ourselves that was about the Holocaust. Um, and that that class was punctuated at the end by a presentation from a Holocaust survivor. And it made me think, I mean, that was such a powerful, formative class for me that stuck with me forever. Um, and, you know, it's concerning given how much Holocaust denial is out in the world. It's unnerving to think that we might soon live at a time where there are no survivors left to offer these firsthand accounts. But, you know, w- one powerful experience I think you were a part of was 
the trip Barack Obama took with Elie Wiesel uh, when they toured Buchenwald. Could you just talk a little bit about Elie Wiesel for anyone who might not know who he is and like what that experience was like? Yeah, it was it was amazing. So Elie Wiesel wrote, you know, one of the seminal books about the Holocaust, a memoir called Night, uh, about his experience at Buchenwald when he was a boy um, and obviously lost uh, family in the Holocaust and became kind of a, a leading spokesperson on behalf of Holocaust survivors, and, you know, and a key figure in the history of Israel and the history of the Jewish people. And, you know, we we flew into Buchenwald uh, with Angela Merkel. And so it was, it was Obama and Angela Merkel and Elie Wiesel. And they literally walked, you know, a few paces in, in front of us. You remember that weird feeling of being a staffer and you're kind of, you know, 15 yeah. feet behind. And, but you're touring this camp that Obama's great uncle had actually helped liberate. Right. Um, and so Obama had this weird connection uh, to the camp and, and Elie Wiesel had been there. And, and they literally went to the spot where he had been as a, as a boy. And, you know, and then to see after that event, Obama and Merkel and Elie Wiesel all spoke. And Elie Wiesel spoke you know, very powerfully and eloquently about the need to remember. But so did Angela Merkel. Um, I, I remember being struck by her remarks, which were kind of off the cuff about, you know, um, Germany's obligation. And, and it was a, unfortunately, it was kind of a, it feels like it comes from a different era, you know, of yeah. yep. <laughs> of making sure that we we learn the lessons from history and the the darkest possible lesson of the Holocaust. And and some of my family, my family uh, on my mother's side were European Jews, and so some of them uh, uh, that di- didn't emigrate to the United States were were in the Holocaust. And and I I uh, you know I I have this other vivid recollection of Elie Wiesel coming to have lunch with Barack Obama in the White House. And I got to sit in the lunch. It was just the three of us. And he wanted to talk about not policy towards Israel, not U.S. foreign policy. He wanted to talk about concepts of, of love and friendship and, and how do you find meaning in, in life and, and how do you not become despondent from history but learn from it. I mean, this was a man with like a, a powerful moral compass. Um, and, and I do think that at a time when... Um, look, on Israel, like we're hard on the Israeli government a lot. Uh, I will tell you, I had a conversation for one of my projects uh, recently with an activist in, in, in Russia. And I kind of I asked the activist, you know, what makes you hopeful? And in kind of a dark way, he said, well, I know that I'm Jewish. So I know that if it really gets bad, I can go to Israel, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. which was a powerful reminder to me of, again, put aside our criticism of the Israeli government, like the the achievement of having a a state uh, where the Jewish people have that kind of safe haven is something to be protected. At the same time, you know, you see this nationalism and any semitism as a part of the nationalism from people like Trump, uh, you know, uh, and people like Viktor Orban um, that, you know, has, you know, bad echoes of history, too. And so, it's not a bad time as we're all reflecting, you know, to go back and look at the kind of moral example of the Elie Wiesel's of this world to, to remind ourselves of uh, of what what human beings can do when they get it uh, completely wrong and and what they can do coming out of that. Yeah. You know, I, I told you, you know, I've been reading Rise and Kill First uh, by Ronan Bergman. It's a great book about the history of, of target assassination uh, among uh, the Israeli government. And it is, you know, it drives home to you how 
important it was to all of these individuals to have a state given what had happened and how recent that history is and how it drove policy decisions for better, for worse. Um, you know, I, I thinking about that trip with Obama and Merkel and Elie Wiesel, like, it, it gives me chills and really thinking about that whole generation. I mean, my, my grandfather was, um, in the OSS and was, you know, doing Intel. My uncle was shot down over Germany and spent the rest of the war in a, in a prison camp, basically. Uh, and he wrote a book about it. It's this wild thing. So it's like, I don't know, I should look back to those, look back to those times about, um, when it was worse, arguably, uh, recently. Yeah, no, much worse. I mean, my, my, you know, we didn't know my family emigrated pretty early, so it's not like they came in the thirties or something, but you know, they, there was still this big family like back in Poland and in Germany and my mother has this old black and white photo, uh, I think, of her, um, you know, uh, uh, her grandfather or somebody in her family at a reunion in Europe with this, you know, dozens of, of Jews, uh, you know, in, in my family. And we don't really know them, you know. Yeah. And I, so I couldn't even identify who they are in the photo. But you know when you're looking at this, what happened to them, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I have that. I've always had that photo very much in, in my my mind. And I do think that the Holocaust, you know, it's interesting. It was such a, a catastrophic failure of, of, of human beings that in a way, I've actually been thinking about this a lot. It, it kind of shocked the world into trying to not do that again, you know? Um, and so a lot of the infrastructure set up after World War II, the UN, all these things that, you know, we've been talking about the successes and failure of this international order was set up to prevent another world war and another Holocaust. And, and, and part of what worries me about the moment we're in is it's now been 75 years, you know, the, that generation is passing and, 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 and we may have forgotten the freshness of how bad things can get, you know? Totally. Uh, so I think you're right that we should look to the generation of your grandfather and, and the people who, you know, Obama's great uncle and, and, and Ellie Wiesel and, 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 you know, and Angela Merkel, you know, people who've, who've sought to, rectify the, the the wounds of the past by not repeating them. Yeah, agreed. We got a little deep there, but, you know, look, it is, it's a good reminder uh, that all of our, our country, our world has been through uh, a lot very recently, maybe gives us a little perspective yes. that, uh, you know, podcasting from home is not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, so a uh, slightly different story here. So, Ben, our listeners might have been uh, confused this week when they saw headlines reporting that the price of oil had become negative, uh, negative $37.63 to be exact. Um, you might ask, why would anyone pay me to to take their oil? Uh, and the answer is uh, a combination of a bad economy, a supply glut, a lack of storage, and then how it's traded. So I'll try to explain this for you a little background first. So Consumption of oil is obviously way down because of the pandemic, because of the resulting economic shutdown. No one's driving, nobody's flying, factories are closed, et cetera. On top of that, and we've talked about this on the show before, uh, in early March, the Saudis and the Russians, they broke a longstanding agreement to limit the production of oil that was able to keep the price pretty constant. Uh, and so both the OPEC countries and the Russians, they ramped up supply and just started like drilling tons more oil. That was a price war we've talked about. Um, so as demand is crashing, the supply is increasing. After about a month, the Saudis and the Russian realized this is a very bad time to have this fight. Trump intervened. He tried to referee and, and break some agreement where the US also cut production. But 
the damage was basically done in the near term in terms of the market being flooded with this oil. So that gets us to Monday, and then we have to talk about how oil is traded. And so what we're talking about when we talk about the negative price for a barrel of oil is a, a futures contract uh, on a May barrel of West Texas intermediate crude oil. So oil is traded in this very complicated hedged way. I can buy contracts for delivery of a barrel of oil for like several months from now to hedge against a price increase or what have you. Um, so if you own a May futures contract right now, this week, you either have to accept the physical delivery of that barrel of oil or sell it. And, and that's how you get to a negative price. Like a lot of the people buying and selling oil are just traders. They don't have the infrastructure to actually yeah. do anything with it. And as a country and as a world, we are literally running out of places to put the oil. One of the main U.S. storage locations is in Oklahoma. It is estimated to be completely full in May. Traders rent these massive tankers called VLCCs that can hold up to 2 million barrels of oil for temporary storage. But these things cost like a hundred grand a day. So you try to rent them for as little time as possible or else you can end up losing money on the deal. Um, and so because most economists and oil traders expect that the economy will pick up uh, over the next couple of months uh, and demand will increase, a, a barrel of oil, a contract for a June barrel is actually like 15 bucks, 20 bucks, but the May oil is negative. So very confusing. But the gist is this just shows how much this pandemic has collapsed economic activity, how deep the shock is going to be to our economy. And the big, big risk here, which Trump clearly knows because he's talking about this, is that if the price stays really low, like under 20 bucks a barrel, a huge percentage of U.S. oil companies, maybe 80% by some estimates, will just go bankrupt. Like they cannot produce oil at a rate that uh, can be profitable for them. And so you can see hundreds of thousands of people lose their jobs. So today I saw him tweeting about how the U.S. might start making big purchases of oil for the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, you might hear talk about a bailout. But man, Ben, like I, you know, this really drove home to me uh, just how brutal the economic damage from this this shutdown of the economy has been. Well, the good news is that the three people who have the most agency on this issue are Mohammed bin Salman, Vladimir <laughs> Putin, and Donald Trump. Great. <laughs> so I, that makes me feel really confident about this. Um, I also think I was thinking about this last night, uh, you know, sitting in quarantine here and just thinking that, you know, this this whole pandemic uh, is in interesting ways revealing things that were already broken about, you know, our society and how our world works. Uh, we talked to, you know, about the thing I wrote about 9-11 and our overwhelming focus on terrorism. I think another thing is there's just something wrong with a world and a global economy that is hurtling towards uh, a climate change future that has this much oil being produced. You know, yeah. like, like basically to deal with climate change, we should be reorienting the entire global economy to run on things other than fossil fuels. And instead of doing that, it's kind of a symbol of how much we're not doing that, that in a pandemic, there's literally more oil than people can store or do something with because consumption is down. I mean, no, there should not be bailouts of fossil fuel companies. Like the, 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 why? I mean, the reason we have this glut in a way is because of how much fossil fuel companies have had special privileges from governments. Like what we need to do is get to a place where 
this is not the 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 lifeblood of the global economy. Um, so it's a bigger point. I mean, in the short term, yeah, you, you're going to see shocks. I, I wonder you know, what this does for like a Vladimir Putin who who surfed to power in part because oil prices were so high that that the coffers were full in Russia and he could kind of spread the money around. Uh, I think, you know, there, there's serious questions about, you know, what kind of Russian economy there is on the back end of this and and how he's going to manage through that. And, and we've talked a little bit about how that might lead to, to other provocations. Um, so I think, you know, there could be geopolitical uh, fallout that flows from an, uh, an enduring period of low oil prices. There also, I think, should be yet another wake-up call that, you know, it's time to get onto some new forms of energy here because the next pandemic that is coming towards us is climate change. You know, we know what the science tells us. We know what the results will be if we don't prepare, and we're not preparing. Yeah, we, we need to uh, create a, a new form of renewable energy that we produce here. So not dependent on any foreign countries ever again. Uh, and we need to figure out it real fast because this is a little ugly. I don't want to be dependent on the Saudis. Yeah. And what's interesting, Tommy, is that like, you know, in a way, this massive boom in, in U.S. production, again, you know, some of this had happened under Obama with fracking, made people feel like, oh, this means that we're not dependent on, on foreign oil. Well, yes and no, because... These giant producers like Saudi Arabia and Russia can still mess with our economy. You know, yep. they can still mess with people's jobs in this country. They can still, uh, you know, right. hold us over a barrel to, to use the obvious pun. And, and I think it suggested a more durable, sustainable model for job creation is is not in fossil fuels. It's in a transition to renewable energies. Yeah. Uh, one to watch for sure. Uh, here's another pretty amazing story that popped up overnight. So. Late Monday, CNN reported that the U.S. is monitoring intelligence uh, that suggests North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is in grave danger after a surgery of some sort. Uh, the source on this story was a U.S. official with direct knowledge of said intelligence. So if true, it's quite a scoop. Uh, it's obviously still far from confirmed. Uh, some other countries are knocking down this theory. The South Korean news outlet reported that Kim is receiving treatment after undergoing heart surgery last month. So it, it's hard. Like, you know, we talked about this with Secretary Albright. It's very hard to get any good news or intelligence out of North Korea. It's close to impossible. So experts spend all this time examining state news outlets for clues, basically. And, and there's a big one here, which is that on April 15th, uh, Kim Jong-un missed a celebration of his grandfather, late grandfather's Kim Il-sung's birthday, which is the biggest event of the year in North Korea by far. There's fireworks, song and dance events, like competitions. Kim Il-sung is revered like a god because he's the country's founder. So Kim Jong-un missing this event was more than a little conspicuous. Um, Observers note that that his health has been a question for a while. Uh, he disappeared for a month back in 2014 for like six weeks. He reemerged with a limp. Uh, Anna Fifield, who's a, a fantastic reporter at the Washington Post, reported that uh, experts think Kim Jong-un is 5'7", 300 pounds. He's a smoker, so not a healthy guy. Um, so, Ben, I mean... Kim doesn't have a successor that we know of. With his sister started floating around and doing more stuff. There's all these generals who, you know, we don't know what they do. Uh, but I don't believe the country has a, a standard line of succession. It's this cult of personality. Do you care to wildly speculate on uh, what Kim Jong Un's departure might mean and and what could come next? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think we have to be, take this with a, a dose of caution. You know, a lot of these reports had like a single U.S. intelligence source and. Yeah. You know, 2014, we never really knew what happened to him. I think what what's going on here is, as you say, he's like 300 pounds and smokes, and I think he probably has some other habits that aren't good for him, and uh, he disappears, and people start speculating. 
uh, if there is a succession issue, I, I think it would, you know, any succession in that country, even the succession to Kim Jong-un, who was in the, the family line, led to purges and increased provocations, you know, and a lot of bloodletting. You, you have a situation where you have his sister, who's taken a more prominent role and is really the only f- member of the family that could take up the mantle. You know, Kim killed his you know, brother um, right. and, you know, doesn't have a child, you know, who can step in. And, and yet this is a very patriarchal country, you know, very male dominated country. And, and so then you've got these kind of generals. He's got a, you know, a, he's got a number two guy. And you could see like, you know, some jockeying, some competition because for it to, on the one hand, for it to not stay in the family would go against everything about this country. This country right. exists as a cult of personality around this one family. And it's gone from the grandfather to Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un. And so to, for it to leave the family, I think would open up a Pandora's box of competition. But, you know, whether the the the, the male-dominated hierarchy there would accept a woman is an open question. So I think in any event, if there is a succession crisis, it is likely to bring about some bloodletting, some competition, some jockeying, probably more likely a degree of competition, perhaps flows of refugees into China or into South Korea. Uh, so hard to manage. So it's one of these situations where, you know, Kim Jong-un, it's not that he's a great guy. It's just that we don't know there's an uncertainty with what comes next. And it would probably be, at least in the short run, uh, a bumpy ride. But but I, I would take these reports with a big grain of salt until we, we see anything more definitive. Big, big grain of salt, single sourced uh, U.S. official monitoring intelligence that suggests is, uh, you know, it's not not entirely locked down. And that's not a criticism of the reporters. It's just hard to get information out of there. Uh, you know, Trump would have to find somebody new to send letters to. But that's a whole other whole other story. Um, so one coronavirus story that I did think we should talk about uh, this week was the World Food Program estimates that the pandemic is going to double the number of people facing acute hunger this year. Uh, they estimate that around 265 million people in low and middle income nations could face starvation by the end of 2020. That's double the 2019 number. Um, you know, that's not just because of the coronavirus. It's a confluence of factors like conflict and famine and, and climate change. But I just think it's, again, important to keep in mind that as hard as uh, this is for people in the U.S., these crises tend to impact poorer countries even worse. And, you know, at some point when we're, you know, reasonably close to feeling like we've we've managed the crisis at home, donor countries are going to have to step up to prevent a horrific humanitarian outcome, one, but also to try to prevent more economic uh, and political crises in, in places like Africa, wars from breaking out, right? I mean, like these events tend to spiral into uh, worse and worse scenarios if left unchecked. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that this is a space to watch in terms of how this plays out among the most vulnerable communities in the world. Uh, you know, I, I, I checked in a few days ago with a friend of the pod, uh, Zaralash Talamzai, you know, who we had on to talk about Afghanistan. And you know, she has this, this NGO that works with refugees. And she said, people don't even know what's happening in refugee camps. You know, like the, there's just there's no visibility. Like a lot of the aid workers had to leave because people were kind of pulled out. And so some of these places, it's a black box. Like people don't even know what is happening in these camps. I, uh, you know, you look at a country. I was talking to someone the other day who works on South Sudan, and you know, there's less than 200 doctors in South Sudan, right? And and at the same time, donor money, whether it's international, it's governments or international organizations or just private individuals, is 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 drying up 
for things like refugees or famine because, you know, understandably people are giving in their own countries again. So, you know, if you're, uh, you know, the U.S. is spending $2 trillion to prop up our own economy, wealthy individuals are probably donating for, you know, combating the coronavirus in their countries. And so I think there's going to be this double shock where vulnerable communities that are, that, that are at risk of famine or at risk of a public health collapse already are going to get hit by that at the same time that there's going to be less funding for them. And so as we climb out of this thing, I don't know how you begin to try to make that whole. The U.S. government is going to have very little money to work with. You know, when Obama came into office, we had a promise in our campaign to double foreign assistance. And as soon as the financial crisis happened, we we scrapped that promise because we knew, you know, we were going to be running a trillion dollar deficit and we're going to have to be, you know, uh, trying to prop up the U.S. economy. And so I, I think it's going to take, you know, wealthy individuals who have plenty of money, frankly, and, and, and other creative sources of funding to make sure that some of these places don't go off a cliff. And it bears watching. Yeah, it really does. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Okay, one other thing that bears watching is Hong Kong. So we spent a lot of time last year covering the like, incredibly brave protest movement uh, in Hong Kong. Obviously, now because of the coronavirus, it's no longer safe to take to the streets. So you're not seeing protesters. Uh, but the Chinese government is, is cynically using COVID as cover for, uh, you know, to increase their efforts to crush pro democracy efforts in Hong Kong, basically. So. Hong Kong authorities recently arrested more than uh, a dozen pro-democracy activists, and then the Chinese government, uh, they're being increasingly assertive uh, about what they believe is their right to supervise, in quotes, the city, to weigh in on these political matters, to publicly come out in support of these arrests. Uh, And they are undercutting the semi-autonomous nature of Hong Kong's government, and they're blaming the U.S. for the protest movement, right? It's like the, the typical playbook. So, Ben, I mean, could you just remind listeners of you know how the Hong Kong government works in relation to China and, and why the arrest of these activists is seen as such a big deal? 
Yeah, so the you know Hong Kong is supposed to have you know one country, two systems. So it's a part of China, but it has its own system with civil liberties and it own, its own legal system. Importantly, for the people of Hong Kong, and they have their own government, their own Hong Kong governing authority that has a legislative chamber and a chief executive. China has already chipped away at, at, at essentially the democracy that Hong Kongers uh, believe that they're entitled to under one country, two systems. Because, for instance, China gets to pick who they can vote for <laughs> to be chief executive. Um, and I, I think the, the reason uh, this is so important is, you know, you had this momentum through the protest movement that, you know, was able to beat back some some laws, particularly a law that would have allowed China to extradite people to Hong Kong. Um, and the sense that the democracy camp was gaining strength. There were local elections in December for, you know, a relatively powerless body uh, of district council members who deal with kind of concerns like traffic and you know things in neighborhoods, and overwhelmingly the result went to people who are in the pro-democracy camp. And now you have uh, you know the protests obviously are not happening in the same manner that they were, and there's a legislative election in the fall that is a chance for the pro-democracy camp to actually try to acquire some meaningful power, and and I think there's a sense that with the world's attention elsewhere, with people not able to turn out in the street, that they can deploy a playbook that is a combination of chipping away at the autonomy of Hong Kong, so giving more power to the Chinese government to control events in Hong Kong. There's something called the Liaison Office for the you know, Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong that has grown increasingly powerful relative to the Hong Kong government. And so they've been granted some additional powers, uh, some efforts to mess around with Hong Kong's basic laws, uh, so that you know they're brought more in line with uh, the Chinese Communist Party's view of how things should go, and also to try to decapitate some of the leadership of these movements through these detentions. And so they've been arresting not just some of the young people who've been protesting, but some of the older people who are established political figures and pro-democracy figures, perhaps to just kind of shape the environment coming out of the coronavirus, heading into those legislative elections. And so it definitely feels to me like the Chinese Communist Party is going on offense um, in this in this moment in a very cynical way to try to demoralize, uh, in some ways, decapitate the pro-democracy camp in the country, uh, not literally, but through detention and harassment, um, while also getting back to chipping away at the Hong Kong's legal autonomy. Um, and so, you know, I think what I would look for is if and when you know, life can return to normal, is there another explosion of momentum for uh, the, the the protest movement? Or does uh, China kind of slowly demoralize uh, and strangle that movement? Uh, my sense is that there'll be another explosion of momentum um, in reaction to what China is doing. But, you know, it, it, it's another example of uh, we just don't know how long this will will endure in terms of you know life not returning to normal and and what these governments can do in the meantime to give themselves greater power and leverage. Yeah, that is exactly right. Hey, look, just just one note on some data I saw out of China. Um, so uh, Hubei province, where where Wuhan is located, the epicenter of this outbreak, they released some economic data showing that the economy in that region shrank forty percent in the first three months of twenty twenty compared to a year ago. So I just thought that that was an interesting indicator of how much 
economic pain, a lot of countries will probably end up finding that they have dealt with. I also saw that you know China's handing out cash in the form of these shopping coupons in an effort to help out retailers. But according to this Reuters report, it's not really working. People are spending on necessities. They're not going to restaurants. They're not doing the tourist activities, luxury items. And so you know it's probably foolish to compare sort of consumer spending trends across countries. Like I don't know how Chinese citizens spend their money typically, but it, I just do think it's like another data point that shows the whole world is deeper. It's going to take longer to bounce back, even with government stimulus. So this thing is going to play out over a long time. Yeah. And we're probably going to have a, let's just say, not a very nuanced discussion of China in this country in our politics nope. for the next six or You're seven not. months uh, with you know Trump yelling about the China virus and you know blaming China for all this and kind of apocalyptic rhetoric and conspiracy theories that this is like a bioweapon. And you know, Biden, you know, hitting back and you know being tough on China, but it's all in the context of this virus. Um, you know, we have a bigger conversation that we do need to have as a country about, you know, what our view of the Chinese Communist Party is and how do we both work with them when we can, but stand up for our values in places like Hong Kong and stand up for our interests when they're pushing people around. And I do think that China is going to emerge from this like everybody, like us, too, with some real vulnerabilities. Um, I think some other countries are resentful about how they've handled this. I think... Uh, there is a sense that Xi Jinping and the Communist Party under him is pushed too far into people's comfort zones. So, uh, you know, when we come out of this and if we come out of an election and we can spend some more time you know, in future episodes talking about this, I, I think that there needs to be a, a real, you know, thoughtful, you know, reconsideration of what, uh, you know, the U.S. view of China should be that gets beyond Trump's demagoguery or Biden defending himself to to, to some of these core questions. Yeah. Uh, a few more quick things here. So, you know, there, there is this debate in the U.S. Congress about how lawmakers could meet remotely. Apparently, according to Politico this morning, lawmakers are trying to negotiate a way to do proxy voting where a lawmaker can vote on another's behalf. But, you know, it's not there yet. But I, I just want to raise that I saw that lawmakers in the U.K. are now meeting virtually. So the House of Commons met with 50 of 650 members of parliament physically in the chamber. The rest were basically zoomed in. They were doing what we're doing right now. Uh, it is obviously an imperfect solution. Uh, hope they don't get Zoom bombed. Uh, they also haven't figured out a way to vote on legislation. So that part's on hold. But you know, this AP story also notes that lawmakers in Germany and Poland are meeting with social distancing measures. Canada is doing a mix of digital and in-person meetings. In Lebanon, lawmakers are meeting in a big theater to allow for a appropriate space. So I just was like, you know, look, if a 700-year-old institution in, in the UK can find a way to modernize, for God's sake, the US Congress should be able to, too. I'm just still floored that there wasn't already a plan for this in Congress. Yeah, um, you know, it's absurd. It, it's absurd that 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 you know, with all the threats of, you know, pandemics or cyber attacks or something that that nobody had thought through kind of contingency plans. I I do think it's important though because, you know, we are a country that is already kind of rattled by all this. Uh, what if there's some other big event on top of this one? You know. Uh, um, and and so this is something where the, there should be a fix. P they're going to have to be able to move swiftly uh, under any circumstance, given uh, the pace that things are going. If another crisis emerges on top of this crisis, how are we going to handle that? So this is something they got to get their act together. Yeah, uh, we talked about this with uh, uh, Secretary Albright, but I just want to briefly raise with you. So uh, on Monday night, Trump tweeted that he plans to issue an executive order uh, temporarily suspending immigration into the United States, like 
no big deal. Oh, hey, I'm just going to tweet this out. Um, uh, he cites the coronavirus. They need to protect American jobs as the rationale. Uh, immigration had all been ground to a halt already by him, Trump and Stephen Miller and you know their efforts to end political asylum and restrict travel and other bureaucratic steps. Um, the State Department, as a practical matter, hasn't been processing visas for weeks because of COVID. Uh, so the Times, New York Times reported that a formal order uh, uh, temporarily barring new green cards and work visas could come in the next few days. It would likely be coupled with an expansion of these travel restrictions. So this is no surprise to me. It shouldn't be to anyone. Like Trump's uh, main political strategy is demagoguing immigrants. Xenophobia is like a core Republican strategy. Um, but, you know, it'll get contested in court. I guess just like the thing I was thinking aloud to myself to play devil's advocate for a second is I assume that any long term coronavirus mitigation plan is going to have to be coupled with a pretty intensive restriction on international travel, right? Because we can't get our house in order with testing and everything here and then allow people just to fly in and out of the country if they're not doing it in those places. So I don't know what that would mean. Could mean quarantine upon arrival or, you know, some other ways short of ending immigration entirely. But I'm just like trying to think through in my head what the new normal might be for just purely medical reasons, while I obviously find uh, the way Trump treats immigrants to be disgusting and probably illegal. Well, I think it, it, to your last point there, Tommy, the, the first thing about this that doesn't make sense is more people come to this country just traveling to this country than because they're emigrating to this country. Exactly. You know? So if there's a problem that has to be solved, it's basically how do you resume the international travel that is the lifeblood of the economy and that takes place in numbers that absolutely dwarfs immigration to this country. And, you know, in past situations in Ebola, you know, there was screening at certain airports. Uh, people came from certain countries. I mean, you've already seen in this case, I think Singapore has done quarantine at airports for a period of time. You could do testing. But that's about travel. And and what worries me here is that, you know, you you take a step in a crisis and just because it's political doesn't mean he doesn't believe in it and might not want to follow through in it. We've already seen them chip away at nearly zeroing out the number of refugees, trying to eliminate asylum as a tool for people to come here, yeah. uh, trying to cut you know think foreign students from coming here, uh, and now you know perhaps just ending immigration. If he's reelected, who's to say what the new normal is that emerges on the other end of coronavirus? And you know, uh, 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 there's so many angles to that. I, uh, apart from just the horror of changing who we are as a country, which is a country built by immigrants, um, changing the fact that we benefit from the best and brightest coming here. You know, it's funny, this guy likes to rail about China and, and Trump. Well, you know, you know where like these people are going to go to study? They're going to go to China. You know, all, all these foreign students and engineers and people who come to live and work here and study here and some of them stayed and started companies and some of them went back to their countries and became, you know, the leaders of their countries and had good feelings with the U.S. They're not going to come here anymore. And, and so it's going to have a, an impact on us in that way, too. So I, I, it's not the right instrument for dealing with the coronavirus you know, dealing with testing is much more important than suspending immigration. Managing travel flows is much more consequential than just suspending immigration. And I do worry that even if it's just kind of a, a symbolic political step in a way, given that there's not a lot of incoming anyway right now, uh, what is the normal on the back end? And so to me, as soon as I thought saw it, I just thought, well, this is the stake in our election, because if he's reelected, you know, God knows if we ever return to normal levels of immigration.
Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's also, uh, unfortunately, probably the fight that he wants because he would rather be able to demagogue yeah. Mexican citizens or whomever than actually talk about his response. But, uh, you know, we'll see how the, the political fight uh, plays out. And, and to that end, Ben, so the group you uh, helped found, National Security Action, you guys did some interesting polling this week uh, on uh, key swing states. So I think it was 1,200 voters in 12 battleground states. And some of the numbers uh, that jumped out at me from the report you guys did. So uh, voters disapprove of Trump's handling of relations with other countries by a 14-point margin. By a 22-point margin, voters think he has increased the risk of uh, getting the U.S. into a war. Uh, 56% think Trump has made us less respected. A plurality thinks he's made us less safe. 70%, uh, nearly 70% said they preferred a president who emphasized diplomacy over military strength. Um, you guys also tested some messaging like, uh, you know, some of the most effective messaging against Trump was that he refuses to listen to experts. Uh, that were less respected in the world because world leaders don't take him seriously and that his behavior, like the recklessness, the impulsiveness, raises the risk of war. Um, looking at the poll and sort of all the conversations you've had about it, like what did it teach you about how the electorate views Trump when it comes to foreign policy and national security and how Joe Biden might run against him in the most effective way? Yeah. So when we were out and, and we intentionally did this, we've done polls before uh, that were nationwide, but because we're heading into a presidential election, we really focused on just the battleground states um, to, to, to have this be most relevant. And I think you know what jumped out to me, and, and I should add, this was done kind of right before social distancing. You know, So coronavirus was the thing, but it wasn't the dominant thing which in a way I think is useful because it was a snapshot of where the electorate was as we headed into this. Part of what stood out to me is that, you know, voters did say that standing up for American values mattered to them and in a healthy majority. They feel that Trump doesn't do that, but they also feel like he's not even taken seriously around the world. You know, there's this sense that not only do we not stand for the things that we used to stand for, but that we're kind of an embarrassment, that this guy's just not taken seriously. Um, and so I think the opening for Biden is that core message of, you know, we, we need to be for the things that Americans have stood for throughout our history, and we need to be respected in the world again, uh, which is a basic message of one he can drive. I think another thing that stood out to me is that people understood and this gets to the point that they're worried about him getting us into a war, that he's reckless. Like the, the language that voters kept using and the messages that they responded to in this poll were around the fact that Trump is reckless. He doesn't listen to experts, as you said. I think that for Biden, connecting the things that voters already think to be true about Trump to his coronavirus response is really important, right? Mm -hmm. So people were already inclined to think that this guy is a little too reckless with our security, inclined to think that he doesn't listen to the experts in the room. And you have to take that thing that they know to be true about Trump and say, this is why they're not tests. <laughs> this is why we were behind the curve on the coronavirus. This is why he's made us less safe in his handling of the coronavirus. I think a, a couple other things that jumped out to me where he had a slight advantage is on the sense of, of you know, national security, um, you know, that he could be trusted to deal with our national security. Interestingly, foreign relations, he scored much worse than national security. And I think that's a window into how much Trump has securitized the debate around immigration and in just being belligerent is still a slight advantage for Republicans on issues like terrorism. But I think with the coronavirus, 
Democrats have to make the argument, Joe Biden has to make the argument that this is about keeping us safe too. The national security isn't just about terrorism or building a wall at the border. It's about, are we preparing to deal with pandemics that come to our borders too? So in a way, you know, there has to be a changing of the frame around national security. One other thing that I'll just highlight, Tommy, because it stood out to me because we've talked about it on this podcast, there was very real concern in the testing with the way Trump has politicized the military hmm. and the, you know, the, the ways in which he you know, has uh, gone against uh, traditions respecting you know, uh, the, the role of the commander in chief vis-a-vis the uniform military, interfering in the chain of command, the, the disrespect at times for um, uniformed officers. Uh, that, that may be an opening that Democrats don't necessarily fully appreciate they have, that this guy, you know, if you're talking about to veterans, if you're talking to base communities, the way which this guy has broken all kinds of norms. And look, the, the Trump fans there will be fine with it. But it, uh, the sense I get from this polling is there is a very real concern that he's just not handling the job of commander in chief appropriately. And I think that's an argument that Joe Biden can make, too, you know, that yeah. that, that, that this guy's betraying the tradition of how the commander in chief op, uh, functions vis-a-vis the military, both in how he's politicized them and how he's kind of interfered in some of these chain of command issues. Yeah. I mean, look, the story uh, of uh, Captain Crozier and I think the USS Theodore Roosevelt um, and how disastrously the Navy handled uh, a crisis of like hundreds, if not thousands by now, of sailors getting sick on that boat, one of them actually dying. It's probably a pretty good, uh, understandable story to tell about the problem of Trump just like willy-nilly interfering into the the military justice system. Yeah. And people understand that, you know, obviously, especially veterans and, and people in base communities. But I think Americans understand that that's troubling. You know, and and I I haven't heard the Democrats make that argument. I haven't heard Joe Biden make that argument. But I think it's a given how much respect people have for the institution of the military. um, I think that's that's an argument to make that 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 essentially this this guy is unfit to be commander in chief. And he's betrayed, you know, the, the, the sense of values and decorum that we expect in a commander in chief. Yeah, agreed. Okay, that's it for the news. Uh, But stick around, because after the break, we are going to talk with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious... You'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails Tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. We are thrilled to be joined now by a former Secretary of State, former ambassador to the United Nations, and author of the new book, Hell and Other Destinations, a 21st Century Memoir. Madeline Albright, thank you so much for joining the show. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Could we start with some breaking news? So there, there's been some reporting overnight and this week that uh, North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un might be gravely ill. He might be recovering from surgery. Uh, it might all be wrong. Who who knows, <laughs> since it's so hard to get information out of that country. Um, 
But it's so great to speak with you because you are one of the few human beings I've ever met who's been to North Korea. Uh, and I was wondering if we could just start there and you maybe could tell listeners a little bit about what that experience was like and whether you know you have a sense of what a, a leadership transition might look like out of North Korea or if that's one of those uh, black box components of their leadership that we just don't know yet. Well, I think you really hit the story on the, the nail here because basically we didn't know very much about North Korea. Uh, and that's the whole problem because we have no embassy there, uh, nobody on the ground. Uh, we had to operate through those that were uh, telling us something like maybe some South Koreans or whatever. And what happened was that when I went there initially, uh, um, the, this guy, Kim Jong-un's father was the, the head of it, Kim Jong-il. And I was told basically that he was crazy and a pervert. <laughs> I talked to Kim Dae-jung, the president of South Korea, and then I went there myself. He clearly wasn't crazy, uh, but there were some weird things that went on in terms of uh, when I got there, I just sat in the guest house because I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And I knew that they were listening to me uh, and taping me. And then I didn't know at the time, though I was told that when you type on a laptop, they can just tell by the strokes what you're doing. Wow. So literally we sat there and then I get a call saying I had to go to see his embalmed father, um, which is harder and more complicated than it looks because if you uh, bow too low, then the American press says you're being obsequious. If mm -hmm. you don't bow low enough, you haven't accomplished anything. Right. So I'm at the right angle because when I got back to uh, uh, the guest house, they said the dear leader will see you. So we have a press conference, which was like something out of the 50s, uh, and uh, Kim Jong-il and I were the same height. So I look over, and I know I had on high heels, and so did he, and his hair was a lot poofier than mine, and, <laughs> and it was a pretty crazy press conference. Now, the only thing we did know, therefore I take complete responsibility for Dennis Rodman, because the <laughs> only thing we knew was that Kim Jong-il liked basketball. So I took over a basketball autographed by Michael Jordan, which is in their Holy of Holies. But the bottom line is that we, don't, we didn't have the in, much information then, and we have no information now about what's going on because of uh, not having any representation. I think we don't know what will happen uh, because uh, the question is, you know, how is this even decided? Uh, there had been some discussion of some uh, succession when Kim Jong-il was still alive. But uh, I've been trying to follow this today and I think that we don't know, uh, uh, you know, and uh, Kim Jong-un has a sister who's been doing a lot of talking, um, but we don't know. And so given all the things that are going on, it makes it very difficult when we have no eyes on the ground. So I, I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about your book, uh, which uh, characteristically is a, a great, uh, both entertaining and, and motivating read, is, you know, you've had a, this this career in public life and then, you know, continuing to be a public figure after, you know, leaving the State Department. And, and you've really been at the center of, I think, the effort to connect kind of America's standing in the world, what we represent, uh, the values we advocate for, the relationships we build abroad, you know, to, to make that relevant for people, to make that relevant both to our foreign policy and to how Americans think about the world. And you and I ended up uh, 
you know, crossing paths and some of those initiatives in the Obama years where you're always pressing us to do more in that space. And, and I'm wondering just how you reflect on where America's standing is today um, with uh, President Trump kind of vacating his leadership role and also setting, you know, a very different example than past American presidents have set. You know, how 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 deep is the loss been in terms of America's standing and what we represent in the world and and what might we do to try to recover that? Thanks for asking that. But what I want to do is put it into a little bit of context, because one of the things that I always say is uh, people are uh, very much a product of their backgrounds. Um, and um, the uh, intelligence agencies provide product, but the decision maker is the customer and you bring your own story with it. So in my case, I think people may know I'm an immigrant uh, and I um, my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat. We spent World War II in London. I write about this in the book. And then I came to the United States when I was 11 years old after the communists took over Czechoslovakia. And I have grown up with the idea that the United States is the most uh, important country in terms of determining what policy is like. That when the U.S. is not present, terrible things happen. Um, and when we are present, things change. So. Uh, I mean, that's a, a short way of describing it, but I really, um, I'm a very grateful American. And so one of the incredible things about my life is it never occurred to me that I would someday sit behind a sign that said United States, first at the United Nations and then as Secretary of State, and recognizing the power that the United States had and what should be done with it um, in a very, uh, kind of nebulous situation, in my case, after the end of the Cold War. So, uh, and as you know, President Clinton is the first one who said that we were the indispensable nation. I just said it so often that it became identified with me, but there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. It just means that we need to be engaged. And so I believe in American engagement um, in uh, the world in a positive way with partners. And so I am, I don't even know what the right words anymore. Deeply troubled is, is too mild um, in terms of what is going on now. We're AWOL. Uh, and I think we can see that not only are we AWOL, but we're blaming everybody else for what is going on. And so I think it's an irresponsible way to approach uh, foreign policy. Uh, and so I am very troubled. I was uh, for instance, a perfect example, and I think you've been been to the Munich Security Conference, and basically they were making we we weren't playing a role. I mean, um, the Secretary of State came and, and kind of was like somebody from another planet, um, and no, they are just kind of looking at us like, what are you talking about? And I think that's dangerous for America, and it's certainly dangerous in terms of dealing not only with a pandemic. Uh, but with the other issues, nuclear proliferation and um, issues of uh, climate change and military relationships or lack of with all kinds of countries. So I think this is a, not a good time in terms of how we are viewed in the world. And I also wanted to get at there's the, the absence in solving problems, as you mentioned. There's also that example in your, your own story. You've done such a remarkable uh, job in your books of connecting your story uh, as someone who came to this country, uh, as you just said, with your service to this country. And, and we heard just yesterday, President Trump announced via Twitter that he was suspending all immigration into the United States, 
that obviously comes after efforts to cut the numbers of refugees who could come here as low as possible to limit asylum. Uh, what is that for you personally? Um, you know, what is the, the, the impact of a president taking these steps? And, and how should Americans think about how those things are received around the world? Uh, you know, it's beyond our foreign policy to have someone suspending immigration, you know, trying to limit or eliminate refugees. What does that do to how people around the world think about us and how people like you who, who came to this country uh, because of our openness? Uh, how do you think about that? Well, I actually think it's un-American in so many ways. And I've said in shorthand that the Statue of Liberty is weeping. Um, I, am, I, I was asked to, uh, recently to describe myself in six words. And I said, worried optimist, problem solver, grateful American. And I am a grateful American because who knows what would have happened to us. Uh, my father was tried in absentia in uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, you know, and uh, after the communists took over. But uh, speculating about that is not as interesting as the life that I've been given, and which is why I am grateful. And I do think that what is important is to understand how America can play the role of being an engaged partner and understanding that uh, we benefit from it. Uh, and we benefit from, and, and this sounds self-serving, but basically people that have come to this country because they want to contribute and be grateful. And so, first of all, I do think what Trump just did is kind of, a, it's a political action because he's already limited everything in terms of who's coming in and, and the system isn't set up to interview people or anything. So it's just kind of one more uh, finger in the eye and making it worse. The bottom line is that there are a lot of doctors uh, and a lot of the people that are the first responders now that are people that are immigrants. Uh, and, and I have to say that one of the great honors for me was when President Obama gave me the Medal of Freedom. Uh, and I have it in my office because I tell my American story. I have the manifest from when we came to the United States in 1948. And it ends up with getting the Medal of Freedom. And one of my favorite activities is uh, to give out naturalization certificates. And the first time I did it was July 4th, 2000 at Monticello. Um, I figured since I had Thomas Jefferson's job, I could do that. And so I give this man his uh, naturalization certificate and he walks away and he says, can you believe it? I'm a refugee and I just got my naturalization certificate from the Secretary of State. And I couldn't help it and I went up to him and I said, can you believe that a refugee is Secretary of State? And I do think that uh, I'm very honored, grateful American, and what is happening now does not make any sense on any, um, any level at all. Once again, for folks listening, the, the book is Hell and Other Destinations, uh, 21st Century Memoir. So you can pick up a copy probably online. It's probably the best bet right now, uh, but all, all kinds of places. Um, the the current Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, is a, a close friend of this show. Uh, just kidding, we dislike him greatly. He seems to be missing. <laughs> he seems to be missing an action during this crisis. Maybe that's a good thing, uh, seeing his performance on other issues. But I guess, can you help uh, listeners understand what what a competent Secretary of State could or should be doing right now to manage what is obviously a, a global crisis? Well, I think that. It's a key role, frankly. I mean, the Secretary of State is the most visible person 
um, going abroad or having contacts with other countries to try to solve problems. Um, I do teach a course at, at Georgetown, and I talk about this in the book, but, but basically, uh, I, I think that my courses say, I'd say, uh, foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want, so what are the tools? And it's called the National Security Toolbox. And diplomacy is the basic tool. It is the way that we talk to other countries, um, and sometimes it's in small groups and sometimes in large groups, but it is the language of one country talking to another. And there are issues, some very serious problems, even short of the, of the virus, but basically you need to be out there, you need to be able to establish relationships and um, to, uh, they aren't just pleasant visits when you go abroad. I used to say, I mean, you go through, you know, the weather's nice and everything. <laughs> I like your tie. Um, but basically, after the small talk, you are there to say what you think. And I would often say, I have come a long way, so I must be frank. So you try to solve problems, but you also talk about what are the national interests of your country. I can see no visible sign of that going on. Maybe it is, but I can't see it. The part that I think is also really depressing um, the State Department is composed of uh, foreign service officers and civil servants and people that are dedicated to the United States, uh, and they serve in different administrations. They have basically uh, been kind of decommissioned, frankly, because they have been on the front lines, and uh, many people have been asked to leave, many people have left. Um, Pompeo said that he was going to go to the State Department to return a swagger, I sure can't tell. Um, and not only that, but he doesn't defend his diplomats uh, when in fact they are summoned to, to go and testify and they tell the truth uh, and then they are kind of put in the doghouse. So I don't understand what's going on uh, and not in terms of, and I, by the way, I have to tell you, uh, there is an excellent relationships among former secretaries of state. Um, and um, I do have another life that I write about, which is I love being, I, I was on Gilmore Girls and Parks and Recreation, but I was also asked to be on uh, Madam Secretary. And what happened recently was that uh, Colin Powell and Hillary Clinton and I were on it together. And the scene was that something terrible had happened in the White House. And so uh, Taylor Leone summons us and I, everything was scripted, but I was able to get an unscripted line in as we sat down. And I said, isn't it nice when the current Secretary of State calls her predecessors to consult? We used to do that all the time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So what, one other concerning trend seemingly is um, over the last few decades, we have gone through what felt like an inexorable push towards globalization in a more connected world. There's the internet, there's air travel, there's trade, global supply chains, all of which binded countries together, whether the leaders liked it or not. Uh, Trump would probably put himself in the or not category since he's always hammering globalists. But you know, you saw the rise of Trump and these nationalists that were trying to uh, reverse that trend. Are you at all worried that the coronavirus uh, and the potential need to actually shut borders for health reasons might actually help them succeed in, in disconnecting the world and disconnecting America from the world? I'm wor very worried about that because um, all the blame placing that's going on um, and trying to uh, explain why we weren't doing what we were doing is, is 
I mean, the Chinese are going to have to explain what happened, but we need to look at the future and how to solve this. And even though uh, Trump might be saying things, the virus knows no borders. Now, um, and so there is that kind of aspect of the interconnectedness because of the supply chains and a variety of other um, aspects to this. But I am worried about the following thing, which is that, by the way, globalization is not a four-letter word. I mean, it is basically uh, just talking about the relationships that have taken place as a, as a result of the potential of travel and uh, every, all kinds of things. Um, but basically what it has done is it's, a little, it's faceless. And so people want to know what their identities are, which is uh, important and fine. But if my identity hates your identity, then it becomes nationalism and hyper-nationalism is very dangerous. And so that is what I really wrote about in fascism. Um, and now I see it uh, as worse, frankly, because we have a, a president who somehow has to blame everything uh, either on uh, Ben's boss, um, and our president before, uh, or on somebody else, but never taking responsibility for it. And I think that uh, that is creating this kind of sense that it's their fault, we have to have nothing to do with them. And I think it's very dangerous because you don't have to be a genius to figure out that this problem cannot be solved without the help of others, not to speak of climate change, and nuclear proliferation and various other issues that are out there. It is so counterproductive. I cannot believe that a functioning political figure is advising this kind of thing. Well, and you mentioned nationalism. You've written a lot about it in the sense that, you know, there's been this series of movements in different countries where leaders have kind of taken that sense of dissatisfaction with globalization and and channeled people to the kind of more traditional form of national identity in opposition to somebody else. And that leads to these efforts to disrupt or roll back globalization. The other thing I've noticed is it, it can lead particularly to young people, uh, and we have a lot of young listeners to this show, to kind of an apathy, you know, why should I get involved? And I guess in reading the, you know, the thing about your book, you make such a case for living kind of a full, engaged and public life and trying to make a difference, you know, even after you'd finished your government service. What do you say to, to younger people who, you know, are wondering, is it even worth caring about these things? Or if I want to make a difference on something like what America's foreign policy is, I wouldn't even know where to begin beyond just voting in an election. Like, what is it that has compelled you to stay engaged all these years? And how would you want, you know, particularly the younger people listening to think about their role that they can play in a world in which things are not going in the direction that, frankly, a lot of us wanted to be going? Well, in my case, it really is my background and my gratitude. But I really, I look at my children and grandchildren, and my grandchildren are in the um, college age uh, group for the most part. And, and I think that the bottom line is that I have said, we are all beneficiaries of democracy, and democracy is not a spectator sport. Um, and uh, if you don't do something, somebody else will do something that um, it really uh, has an effect on your life that you're not going to like. And one of the things you said, what can they do beyond voting? Actually, voting is the very important part. I'm chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute, and I have gone abroad a lot to observe elections and watch people that have never had a chance to vote stand in long lines, either in the heat or the rain in order to vote, and we take it for granted. And 
And I do think that's the first part. And, and I hope very, very much that our young people go out and vote. Um, and so that part is important. And then also, I think understanding that there are, when this is over, the younger generation is the one that's going to have the tools to deal with the issues. Uh, because I really do think that technology is going to play a very large part. We have kind of made fun of young people uh, by saying that they spend too much time online and that they, uh, you know, don't know how to socialize or uh, that, um, you know, they, they uh, have no sense of privacy. They, they tell everybody on Facebook who they are and then they want to know why people know who they are. Um, but I think in many ways, they will have a lot of the skills that will allow them to operate in what is going to be a completely different world. And if they don't do something, then I can assure you somebody else will um, that will not be in their favor and they will regret it. Those are great words of advice uh, and a fantastic place to end. Uh, the book, again, is Hell and Other Destinations, uh, a 21st Century Memoir. Secretary Albright, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for all the, your service to the country and for joining the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks to Secretary Albright for joining the show today. Ben, one silver lining out of this uh, coronavirus nightmare is that we might not have to shake hands anymore because it's not hygienic and it's gross and it's weird and we're done with it. So I did a little research and by a little research, I mean, I Googled one of those clickbait articles uh, that are usually spawn con from something to figure out how other countries greet people. And so I wanted to run some of these by you as a, a post interview, little uh, Easter egg for the people who stick around. So in Tibet, people greet each other sometimes by sticking out their tongue. Huh. Now, that might be work at a very socially distanced uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, level, but maybe not the best idea. Uh, in the Philippines, uh, young people sometimes press an older person's knuckles into their forehead, clearly worse. Uh, Greenland, France, there's some cheek kissing that's clearly out. This one might work. Thailand, uh, greeters place palms together on the chest and sort of like a mini bow. Um, some Bedouin tribes rub noses as a greeting. That's a hard no. This one's great. Um, there's some uh, parts of Southern Africa where people just greet each other with like clapping. Yeah. Like that sounds perfect for social distancing uh, and culturally pretty seamless since we used to, we clap for each other. A Micronesia, uh, the rock inspired, just an eyebrow raise. Hmm. That one might yeah. work when you, when you enter the room. And then my favorite was there's a, a tribe in, in Nigeria. Uh, they greet each other just by like shaking their fists by their heads like this, yeah, which feels kind of perfect and aggressive and very American. I, I have to say I was at uh, in New Zealand, the Maori, the way they uh, the indigenous peoples in New Zealand, they greet by a, kind of a forehead. You know, you, you put your foreheads together mm -hmm. and we had this big ceremony and Jacinda Ahern was there and, and and she literally greeted every person, including me, with this forehead bump, you know, kind of seamlessly. Uh, I thought it was very cool, actually, but I think that probably doesn't answer the mail. Um, I will tell you what I'm deeply against, which is the elbow touch. Mm, like that just too. feels, I feel like a total loser when I do that. Um, namaste. Perfect. I, I, frankly, may be the, that, that may be the answer to all this, because I've always kind of thought that was cool anyway, and it's socially distanced and the rest of it. So I agree, you know, not shaking hands and washing your hands more may be the... Uh, yeah, it's a feature. The, the public health benefit on the back end here. Were you at the uh, little barbecue that Joe Biden threw for uh, Katie Johnson, one of our colleagues who left the White House, when I, I sat next to him? It was this little group of us, and I actually got forehead-to-forehead -forehead contact from him while he was telling a story. Yeah, so Joe Biden actually did the Maori greeting, 
reading. Yeah, he's a uh, fan of it. Yeah, I don't know if he ever met any Maori, but uh, yeah, I, I do remember that. Yeah. It's uh, it, what was funny about it is on the way in, I called my shot and I said to the people in my car, I was like, look, if I don't get a forehead to forehead greeting and a story about like some old senator I've never heard of, like this is a this is a bust and. Lo and behold. Yeah, I got those a couple of <laughs> times too. They're intense. Like when you really wanted to drive home a point, you know, yeah. uh, you get the forehead bump. Yeah. I did not forget. Yeah. That, that maybe I, I never drew the connection to the Maori though. People should Google that. The Maori, they have these amazing kind of greeting ceremonies too. It's very cool stuff. Very cool. Uh, well, that's all I got for this week. Good to see you and uh, talk to you soon. Yeah. Awesome. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Special thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. 